I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Elizabeth Ray. And Tom Cruise is Joseph Donnelly in Far and Away. So we've got a big problem with this week's podcast, and it's basically this. Mm. There's a huge bummer that we have to talk about. There is a huge fundamental, like, woven into the fabric of this great nation problem that we have to address, and we get to choose whether we do it up front or we do it at the end. But one end of this show is going to be a bummer. Yes. Do you want to do it now or later? (laughs) (laughs) I think we do it now. We do it now. We rip the Band-Aid off. Yes. As best we can. Yes. You cannot pretend that Oklahoma was just empty land that we could just hand off to white boys. Oh, no, no. Ron Howard disagrees. You can absolutely pretend. You can absolutely pretend and not not address the native issue at all. You ought not exactly. All is the part that surprised me. Like, I knew there wouldn't be enough. I knew that there would be like one lame nod, but there wasn't even that. There There wasn't wasn't even a nod to indigenous persons, to first peoples. The, the Oklahoma Territories was first Indian territory. Like, yeah. it's just such a huge part of that story. And the fact that it was completely omitted from this film is ugly. And the fact that this film heroizes, as the yeah. myth around the land run does in general, oh, yeah. heroizes the claiming of this empty virgin land. This land is my destiny? Like, absolutely yes. not, son. Yeah. Really gross and uncomfortable. Yeah. So as a part of approaching a kind of social reparation, a a, a social restitution here in Oklahoma. A lot of individual businesses, a lot of public-facing organizations in particular, Mm -hmm. now include as a part of their social presence, their online presence, their marketing presence, whatever it may be, a statement of stolen land, in effect. Yes, yes. Yeah, we do a land acknowledgement, or I say we, I have now graduated from OU. (laughs) But one of the things I really enjoyed about every, uh, you know, syllabus day when we first came in for the new semester is that every professor started by reading the land acknowledgement. And it was always really quite emotional, actually, because there are so many Native people who live here in Oklahoma still. And four of my professors in the university at the t- at my time there were Native people as well, who really brought their understanding of their culture and how that shaped their understanding of American culture into the classroom. And I learned so much. I'm really grateful for my time there. Yeah. But in light of that, I thought we would start this podcast by reading a land acknowledgement for Norman, Oklahoma, which is where we do our podcast. It is. Okay. Norman, Oklahoma was the ancestral home of the Caddo Nation and Wichita-affiliated tribes. It was also traditionally a hunting ground, trade exchange point, and migration route for the Apache, Comanche, Kiowa, and Osage nations. As a result of settler colonialism and colonial policies intended to assimilate First Americans, 39 tribal nations now dwell in the state of Oklahoma. And if you live anywhere in America, or Canada, for that matter, in North America... (laughs) You can pretty easily access online a map which will tell you which indigenous peoples and which tribes first occupied the land that uh, you're living on now. And if you don't live in the United States or in Canada, you should maybe check out those maps anyway because they are complex and fascinating. So fascinating. There's also a linguistic map, Mm -hmm. which is genuinely arresting. It it is a really fascinating piece of Mm. ongoing sociological and historical research. Yeah, The link to that will be in the show notes. And I'm happy to say, too, that just north of us, we now have the First Peoples Museum, which is really going a long way to educate visitors who come into Oklahoma and people who have lived here their whole lives and not had a chance to hear the stories of Native peoples and uh, the culture that was lost. That was the thing that was so compelling and devastating to me learning from my professors is how little they know of their own culture because 
it was stripped from them. It was so forcefully taken away that they don't have native recipes that yeah. go even before, like native recipes now that we think of when we think of like, you know, Indian tacos and fry bread were after the government stripped away so much of their ability to farm their own land, took them from their land, that the food that they learned how to make was government rations. Yeah, It was, yeah. you know, shitty cheese and flour and the peanut butter you have to stir. My professors always said that that was a big part of their uh, food growing up was the giant jar of government peanut butter. Right. And it's, it's not even the enormous tragedy of, of one culture, but as you say, 39 yes. nations within the state of Oklahoma and all of these cultures and all of the ways in which those cultures intermingled yes. were erased. Mm. It is an act of unparalleled sociological yes. violence. I mean, obviously there are comparable actions. There are comparable campaigns that have been waged in other parts of the world, but really for scale and for for impact for thoroughness yeah this particular cleansing is yeah among the worst mm -hmm. i would recommend if you are interested in uh the writings especially of native peoples native american poetry specifically is really gorgeous and haunting joy harjo was america's poet laureate until 2022 so her work is really easy to find anywhere on the internet and I would personally recommend Copper Yearning, which is a book of poetry by Dr. Kimberly Blazer out of UW-Madison. Uh, and I got to write a review on her poetry for World Literature Today during my time at OU. And it was a really gorgeous volume. So you can yeah. get your hands on that as well. I'm curious because you are born and raised in Oklahoma, basically. Born yeah. and raised in Oklahoma, asterisk. But because you grew up here, because you particularly had your high school education here, how much of this story, how much of the real story did you learn, and how much of the myth of the land run? More than other people, I think. I, I think that because, I, I, again, because we have so much of a Native population in the state anyway, we definitely talked about the Trail of Tears before we talked about the land run. We right. talked about the Indian Territory before we talked about the land run. We talked about Jackson. All of those things we got before we got to the myth of the land run. So we knew the complications of it, even when I learned about it in, I want to say it was like third or fourth grade that I saw this clip <laughs> of the land run. And that was one of the first things they mentioned is obviously this was not empty land. The Native Americans were here. So we really were more careful about it than other states, I think. That's certainly what I understand anyway. Sure. And you're also right there in the latter half of the 1990s at a real turning point in our popular understanding of these events and certainly in the way that we approach them and represent them yeah. in film. Even Far and Away, arguably, is kind of on the crest of a wave. The year before Far and Away in 1991, that's Dances with Wolves. Yeah, yeah. And then for this film to come out the following year and be so thunderously ignorant mm. of the real underlying issues associated with the land run, I think, is... Yeah, surprising, disappointing, yeah. certainly, and, and just unavoidable. You cannot engage with this film in any way without acknowledging that huge blind spot, I think. Yeah. I, it does make me wonder about how other Americans uh, who went to elementary school in the 90s, how they learned who weren't from Oklahoma, because I spent so much time, a lot of my memories were learning about Native American tribes from all over, like sure. talking about the Iroquois nation and like the difference between, you know, w which tribes had wigwams and which tribes had teepees and uh, the tribes that were nomadic and the tribes that were not, which made it even more horrific to have them uprooted and moved in such a way that they were not in any way prepared for. 
Yeah. But I don't know if everybody got that same kind of education or if that was specific to being someone from Oklahoma who was just, I mean, it's such a huge part of who we are. Even our state flag has a Native American shield. It has feathers representing the different tribes. It has a peace pipe as well as the olive branch. Like we're very, we're very aware of it here. Yes. But you're fighting against more than a century of aggressive myth-making in the other direction. And there's a lot of cultural inertia when it comes to these kinds of, of slow erosions of, you know, the stories we grew up mm-hmm. with. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to, to unpick all of the assumptions that we bring to these, yeah, these embedded myths that have been around for yeah. so long and, and pursued so aggressively, pursued so thoroughly and enthusiastically by the dominant power structures. Yeah. yeah. And it was much later before I learned about, you know, m- later on in history, the Native American children being taken from their homes and put in boarding schools and being forced to learn English and Christianity and to give up everything that they had ever known. And of course, there's a gross symmetry at the heart of this film too, because we can't really talk about the the brutality with which the Native Americans were Mm. treated without talking about the brutality with which the Irish people were also treated by the colonial English force. Yeah, I thought it was strange that we were talking so much about like, Irish oppression and even the racism between the Irish and the Italians, like we were addressing all of that. So it was quite shocking to me to just not even mention Native Americans. I wonder if it's an understanding that to offer a tokenistic recognition of what Mm. happened to the Native populations in the United States, in particular the Native populations here in Oklahoma, if you offered like a moment of recognition, then that is in some ways worse. Yeah. Yeah. Than just leaving white space at the edges of your story. Uh, I don't know. Maybe leaving white space was exactly the wrong way to white put that. Space. But yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about the political depiction of life in Ireland? Well, I don't know enough about it, I suppose. It seemed a little... Like, one of the first things I looked up was like, is Ron Howard Irish? Which is why I learned that he actually is from Oklahoma as well. So yes. he was born and back yes. in Oklahoma, which I did not know somehow or knew and then had forgotten. It felt maybe a little tropish to me, you know, a little... Um, Everybody hollering and fighting and drinking in a way that I find uncomfortable. But I've also never been to Ireland. That's, you know, my ancestry is Irish, it turns out. But I've never been. I've never known anyone who's really spent a great deal of time there either. So I couldn't say. I see what you're saying. You know, like, I I don't want to tell Ron Howard how to depict his own ancestry, but it maybe felt a little icky. (laughs) A small part of his own ancestry. A very small part. Yes. From a long time ago. It is a thin depiction of right? of the Irish population, I think, at the beginning of this film. It is a little broad and generalized. Certainly, you would not want to take that approach to the depiction of Native cultures later in the film if you were to include such things. Right. Because you're right. It is a little bit musical theatery. Yeah. It's a little bit broad. It's a little bit slapdash. And Which I think is a Ron Howard thing, right? Well, we're, we're going to get into exactly what a Ron Howard thing is. <laughs> and if indeed there is a recognizable thing that could be called yes. a Ron Howard thing, because I'm not sure that there is. We'll get into that just a little bit later. But certainly I think the depiction of Ireland is a little bit fairy tale, a little bit simple. The tone of this film is a little bit lighter than you think it is going to be and and consistently remains just a little bit lighter than you think it is going to be a little bit more fairy tale than you think it is going to be yeah so it's difficult to determine exactly what is intended but i mean the political reality of 19th century ireland is harrowing is is just awful this runs from 1800 through to basically the events depicted in this film right the uprising right at the end of the 19th century 
basically all of the arable land in Ireland is owned by families in England. All of it. All of the farmers in Ireland are tenant farmers wow. to usually absentee landlords, right? This is one of the things that makes Christie unusual, makes Christie maybe not feel quite realistic, quite historical, but also not quite ahistorical, also not quite a confection for the purposes of this film. So Ireland through the 19th century is deep in a privation economy. It is mm. deep into, you know, just farming enough that you can sell to people who have no money so that you can send all that money back to your landlords, most of whom live in England. It's a tough time. It's a bad situation. And it is odd that we don't, as you pointed out, see the impact of colonialism on both sides of the Atlantic, yeah. that we don't see it's the impact of this kind of... It's such a natural cycle to point out. Yeah. I, I, I think that the story would have benefited for letting us see like that duality and the irony there. Possibly, it's odd that it didn't. but I mean that that is a film of a very different shape, right? Uh, that yeah, stops then yeah. being a somewhat whimsical Irish fairy tale <laughs> yeah. and turns into a real analysis of of the geopolitic, right? right. Which is maybe why we can understand mm. why the storyline is just a little bit lighter on both ends than you would necessarily expect it to be. The only thing that the film doesn't do to kind of counterbalance that is that it doesn't wave the flag, you know, rah-rah for America either. We don't get, there's that one moment when they get off the boat in Boston and the guy is selling the little Stars and Stripes flags saying, hey, you're an American now. But we also don't seem to engage with the reality of politics outside of these characters, honestly. Mm -hmm. There's very, like, we nod toward even social class and economic class, but we don't really engage with that, not meaningfully. And maybe if Ron Howard has a thing, it is that, right? Maybe if Ron Howard has a a primary quality as a director it is like an apolitical interest in character mm. but also you know a betrayal of his responsibility to carry political storylines through i'm not even sure that he has that responsibility but certainly this feels very nutritionally insubstantial mm. it doesn't feel like a film that has really anything to say no no I except <laughs> that tom cruise can save any movie by punching a horse <laughs> We're going to talk about that, the greatest moment in cinema history, later in today's episode. Let's try and shift gears. Let's try and shift the tone just a little bit. Let's do the trailer game. Okay. It's your turn with the trailer game. I can only imagine we're going to be treated to your pitch-perfect Irish brogue. Oh, no. <laughs> it's got to be at least as good as Nicole Kidman's, right? At least. <laughs> at least. <laughs> Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are back, and this time they're Irish lads and lassies heading across the the Atlantic Ocean in pursuit of the American dream. But first, chicken plucking, boxing matches, burly cue dancers, and the cold snows of Boston. Then we're headed for the Oklahoma Territory for the 1893 land run in which Tom Cruise will plant his flag and claim a piece of earth for himself. Coming this summer... Far and away. You know I drop music behind these. Why have oh, you just I'm made sorry. my job impossible? You can just cut the music right then so I can I'm do it. I'm going doot. to. And the audience <laughs> the at home just heard me important. do it. <laughs> it's hard to do a trailer for this one because the story's a little bit thin, yeah? It's kind of fitting that you say that because we could maybe start this backstory with the review written by Roger Ebert of this film, which is one of the most like cantankerous and ill-tempered reviews of his that I've ever read. Because <laughs> no way. he is clearly so frustrated with the film and yeah. is even at this point a big fan of Tom Cruise. But he finds this film to be 
very, yeah, insubstantial, very yeah. thin. This is my favorite quote from the review. The link to the review will be in the show notes, but this is my favorite quote. Quote, their chance encounter is not an accident, but the basic strategy of the entire plot, which is a series of chance encounters. Perhaps that is because the story is so arbitrary and the characters so transparent that nothing that happens can be explained on any level higher than coincidence. Yeah. And that is certainly how it feels. Oh, Even if you is. overlook the couple of really big coincidences which take place in the film, yeah. everything feels disconnected from everything else. It is just a succession yeah. of things that happen. It's a story told by a five-year-old. <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. And then I went to Boston and I became a super cool fighter. It's like Tom Cruise wrote this in the back of his composition notebook. <laughs> I think despite all that, I want to say up front, overall, I really enjoyed watching this movie. This is going to be the problem, right? Right? Like you can't really complain about it. You can. You can nitpick, complain about it. But like, you know, for a movie, sit down, a romantic popcorn movie from 1992. Yeah. Yes. That's all right. It's harmless. But in its harmlessness is its fundamental flaw, I think. <laughs> it's not objectionable in any given way, from, sure. uh, apart from the political ways that we've already right, outlined. Right, right. Very There's nothing on screen right. that is really objectionable. And occasionally it rises a long way above objectionable. Occasionally this film is really very good and very charming. It is certainly pretty consistently beautifully shot, as long as you don't need Ron Howard to direct a conversation between two people, which is almost always static and inert but anytime he's got something to do with his camera he does it with aplomb it looks great the performances are fine yeah the script's a little thin i really do agree i really do think the script is where this film falls yeah. down yeah let's get into the production story a little yeah, bit because a I'm lot curious. is about to be explained here. <laughs> although i can tell you right now something i was looking for not shot in oklahoma no, shot in the great state of Montana. Yeah, you can tell pretty much immediately. And it is one of the things, and I'll, I'll be curious to ask you about this once we get there, that I find interesting about just having grown up and lived in a place your whole life, you know. It made me quite love what makes Oklahoma unique in particular, because you cannot fake it anywhere else in the world. You cannot get that red dirt of Oklahoma Absolutely anywhere true. else. And it yeah. you know immediately. You can tell, oh, this is not here. Yeah, that sequence at the end when they're taking their horses down the precipitous yeah. cliff down to the room. You know, yeah, that's not, nope. clearly, clearly not over <laughs> Oklahoma. And Montana is a stand-in for Oklahoma in much the same way that I am a stand-in for you. Like, not really at all in any way. <laughs> <laughs> not really at all in any way. Yeah, but again, I would agree. But looks brilliant, I think. And looks we great. really are sure. speaking to this this real kind of late golden age of Hollywood, David Lean kind of epic feel mm. to the last, well, the last fourth, I suppose, of this film. So this movie is conceived by director Ron Howard, who is inspired both by a childhood vacation to Ireland and the stories of his great-grandfather's involvement in the 1893 land run. We should note, by the way, we're talking about the land run like it's a singular event. This right, there were is lots of them. the fourth Oklahoman land run. It is the biggest Oklahoman mm. land run, and it is the one that gives the largest shape, I think, to this state particularly the seats of power of this state. Yeah. I guess that means that this was kind of a 100-year anniversary of the land run sort of thing, too. 92? Yeah, 99 like, years. Roughly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. roughly. Yeah. <laughs> a nod. Howard was born, in fact, as you mentioned, in the town of Duncan, Oklahoma, which is only about 90 minutes away from where we are right now, but it is 90 minutes in the direction that no one ever wants to go. It's in, like, the <laughs> southwesterly direction from here, and there's not a lot down there in that corner of the state, I guess. Lawton has a fort, I think. There's, like, an army base down sure. there, but that's the only reason that anyone, I think, lives there, in fact. Well, and huge fans of Ron Howard, who obviously go there because presumably there's a plaque or something. You could oh, only in Duncan? Imagine that there would be, right? <laughs> you would think. 
Howard is famous, of course, for appearing in The Andy Griffith Show from the age of six. In 1973, he acts in George Lucas's American Graffiti, another seminal, pivotal role, and then kind of effortlessly segues, riding that 20-year crest of nostalgia that we've talked about so often here on the podcast, kind of segues effortlessly into Happy Days, which runs from 1974 to 1984. He leaves in 1980 to begin his directorial career. It's Mm. the kind of story that Hollywood loves. And I do think it's fair to say that Hollywood, the industry, loves Ron Howard. I think that's probably right, yeah. And now Bryce Dallas Howard. And now, of course, Bryce Dallas Mm -hmm. Howard, yes. From there, Howard begins directing and, and acquires for himself a reputation as a solid, if uninspired, director in a 2020 interview with The Guardian. He describes himself by saying, quote, on my own, I'm an introverted, risk averse individual. Ah, And that makes a certain amount of sense yes, when you're does. looking at his filmmaking yes, style. Yes, it does. That said, though, it is a reputation for being easy to work with. And probably as a consequence, he tends to surround himself with genuinely excellent people. He's also extremely hardworking. Since really breaking into his directorial career in 1982, he's made a movie a year, in addition to occasionally acting and becoming the default narrative voice in all of our heads, thanks to Arrested Development. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So he has this idea for Far and Away, and he takes it to Bob Dolman, a Canadian writer who comes up working mostly in television, including on the the seminal, the groundbreaking Canadian comedy series SCTV. His break comes in 1988, when his reputation for his work on WKRP in Cincinnati, that old sitcom, gets him into the room with George Lucas and Ron Howard, where he is hired to co-write Willow. So by the time Ah. we get to Far and Away, he already has a very strongly established relationship with Willow's Ron Howard. Willow's a great script, though. Uh... <laughs> Isn't it? Question mark? <laughs> Willow has a huge amount of charm. Yeah. It has a great deal of inventive world building. Yeah. But again, in the moment to moment, how does this scene connect to the next sure. scene? Structure we... and plot wise, not so good. Yes. Yeah, that is true. In I Willow, just think there are lots of like, very quotable phrases from Willow in a way that I can't think of. And I think that's and true of Far and Away too. No, Is I think, it? yeah, I think so. I have no desire to fight you. It's a great, <laughs> like, oh no, I broke the seal. First Irish broke of the episode. <laughs> Sorry about that. I think there are great, I'm a modern woman. It's fantastic. There's the great moment when she's drinking the rye whiskey in the parlor of the brothel. Yeah. I think if the film had been more successful, it would be more quoted. If okay. That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense, I suppose. But I think there's a lot of sparkle to the dialogue in the film and the movie structurally at the highest possible level is also rock solid we spend 40 minutes in the first act we spend 40 minutes in the third act the middle of the film is boston and the absolute slap bang midpoint of the movie to the minute is when he begins to be successful as a prize fighter it's him mm. winning that first bout and coming home drunk off his ass with four dollars in his race yeah like that's mm. so that structure is fantastic huh. a lot of the individual moments of dialogue i think are very good It's the middle ground. It's how does this scene connect? How do we motivate from one turning point to the next? What is the causal chain, right? You don't want a story that is just and then, and then, and then. You want therefore, you want but, you want despite, you want much more interesting conjunctions between these scenes. And there are no conjunctions between mm-hmm. these scenes, particularly as we move further into the story. And we literally just start irising out on scenes like we're cutting to commercial in a TV show yeah. and irising <laughs> back in on the next one. It's it's really slapdash at the yeah. end of this film. I should conclude this little description of Bob Dolman by noting that he only writes a couple of other movies through the 2000s and then is hired to write on the Disney Plus Willow show 
which oh. I didn't watch fast enough, apparently, because yeah. now it's been erased from the internet. That's so. so wild how that happened. Well, it's taking the tax right down, isn't I it? Know, it's just I the know. grossest thing. Yeah. That's a shame. I never got to see it either. So pre-production on this movie gets started early in 1990. By July of that year, Cruz has been cast. He is signing on for the modest sum of $12 million. Way to go. Let's take a moment to talk about Cruz, because this is, in some ways, obviously, his first misstep. This is his first fumble. This is his first movie that is perceived as a flop, oh, even though it? he's... It's not technically, no. I was going to say, it's not my memory of it, but I was, again, yeah. like it eight makes years back old or something. It makes double yeah. its budget, but this is a pretty expensive movie, and it only makes back its budget internationally. It, it actually mm. loses money in the domestic box office. It's the first time that his magic does not seem to have just worked right That's interesting because he does seem quite magical in it i, I think it so might too. be it's certainly among my favorite cruise performances we've seen so far it Absolutely might be my favorite mine too and i think that it's the first time that he feels really in control of his instrument really in control of Absolutely. his body Absolutely, yeah it he finally knows modern. like where it starts and stops Absolutely. he's a natural boxer he is. i just think he looks terrific this is also the first movie where we are not trying to hide the fact that he's just a little guy which i love and it love suits it. him so well yeah he seems just like such a powerhouse this is something i think that the industry at large will understand about tom cruise much much later mm -hmm. in his career which is he is only interesting when he is on the back foot he is only interesting when he is a scrappy little he's guy a scrapper sure that's yeah. the tom cruise magic is that he can make you believe it and make you right there with him i will say this is our 14th episode here on the last star in hollywood this is the first film mm -hmm. that i've watched where for a moment I forgot it was Tom Cruise. Ooh, very nice. This is nice. the first yeah. time that the performance, that the characterization, which is not thick, right? This is yeah. not deep, rich characterization of Joseph Donnelly. But this is the first time that I was really suspended, even yeah. while I was writing my notes, even while I was in the midst of the film. This is the first time that the magic worked for me. That's great. Yeah. Can you tell me how you felt about Kidman? Or is it too soon for that? <sighs> I find Kidman to be very complex in this film. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to credit her with yeah. and what to condemn her for and where to put the blame. But there, there is certainly some blame. But there is also a great deal of magic. Yeah, sure. I'm inclined to give her the magic and give the script the blame because that seems to be <laughs> consistent across all the other characters too. Yeah. When we have to just do beat after beat after beat of... Oh, she's hard-edged. Oh, she's shrill. Right. Oh, she's difficult to get along with. Oh, she's not moving, you know, emotionally through this story as one would or as one should, perhaps. But all these moments of little crystalline, hard-edged brilliance, hmm. all of that is Kidman. I think that this is a star-making performance, and I think that we should maybe do a bonus show about Nicole Kidman when we get to Eyes Wide Shut, the last movie that she's going to sure. make with Tom Cruise, the third mm -hmm. of three, right? This is it. We've had Days of Thunder already. Now we've done Far and Away. We'll do Eyes Wide Shut in just a, a month's time or so. I would love to do a bonus episode at that point talking about Kidman's career as a whole. Yeah. Because it's bewildering. It's, it's a, such a strange thing. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I, I've been thinking about it and watching this, like the parts where she was really working for me and the parts where she really wasn't. And I think that I really enjoy her a lot as a dramatic actress, but I don't find her funny. And I think when they try to make her funny or when she's trying to play funny, I just kind of lose it a little bit. I, I lose my belief in her Is as the character, I suppose. Always true, do you like think? I see the acting. I think I'm trying to <laughs> remember when she was in Bewitched. One of the most inscrutable films. <laughs> That I have ever seen him. That is that is such a cursed object. Yeah, yeah. 
but yeah, no, I mean, she's not funny in that. She's but also, funny. no one in the world is funny in that film. Yeah, but like Moulin Rouge too, like the the parts in Moulin Rouge where it, it doesn't Rouge, work for me. Also, not a funny film. No, but but when she's trying to do funny, I, I I don't know. I couldn't say for sure, but in this film, certainly. And you know what? I won't say throughout. I won't say that in the whole thing she was never funny. Just in general, more of the comedic moments didn't work for me. But yeah. I think that you're right. The scene where she's at the player piano, or the player piano, she is the player at the piano, and she's drinking the rye, she's pretty great and light on her feet. Yes. I, I guess the reason that I'm pushing back against is, is it her or is yeah. it the script? Is that I think that I feel the same way about her mother, about Lady Christie. Who oh, also sure. is oh, occasionally, cute, it's a cute enough performance. Mm-hmm. And I think she handles the dramatic stuff equally very well. But I think that she also kind of flounders a little bit when it comes to this lighter kind of, you know, the thing that I kept thinking as I watched this film is that this feels like a musical without songs. This feels like, ironically uh, enough, perhaps Oklahoma. Hmm. And I think that the tonality of it makes much more sense. If this were just a stage play, I think that I wouldn't be bothered by those that that tonal flatness mm. in the same way that I'm bothered by it here in the context of a film, particularly a film that is so lushly and naturalistically shot. So I just wonder if the script perhaps doesn't serve its women as well as it Certainly might. that is true. Although, first film to pass the Bechdel? The first Tom Cruise film to All pass right. the Bechdel. All right, we test. did it. I mean... <laughs> Only and barely. Only barely. Only yeah. barely. But she is, I think, a real character with real goals and motivations of her own. So hats off to that. No, she is. She's very defined in that way, even though, again, right, we can celebrate the definition of that character. Mm-hmm. But what is it that she wants? To be a modern woman. I want to go to America. There are no cats there. So I've heard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> also, check the overlap on this and An American Tale. They're the same <laughs> film. <laughs> But that motivation is perhaps a little thin. It's a little first pass. It doesn't mm-hmm. really deepen. And we don't get any internal complexity. We also don't get any internal complexity for Joseph either, right? No. His motivation is triggered by the death of his father and this underlying principle that land is what he wants. And then he bounces from event to event right. to event. And he seems never... to forget for a while that's what he wants. Well, exactly. Yeah. Until he's reminded, not by some inner calling, not by no. some higher aspiration, not by a reminder of who he is, but by a vision of his dead dad. <laughs> Because we can only motivate externally in this film. There's Mm. no internal motivation at all. Not one of these characters has an internal feeling that changes (laughs) the way that they behave. (laughs) And again, that's fine, right? Because we're approaching melodrama. We're approaching a kind of... But it's such a sandy soft kind of melodrama. It's such a fluffy melodrama, which I think is what's taking me back to this like... Sunday afternoon matinee musical mm-hmm, kind of feeling to mm-hmm. the whole thing. While we're on the subject of Kidman, though, we should mention that it is Cruz who gets her the part in this film. He lobbies Ron Howard specifically and the production in general very, very hard for her to get this role off the back of Days of Thunder. It is only after she has been cast and all the contracts have been signed that it is revealed that they are dating. Ah, oh, sure. <laughs> it's kind of a sweet moment. And of course, yeah. we're deep in pre-production on this film when they get married in December of oh. 1990. So they were already married during this filming they have been married for five months by the time that they start shooting wow. in montana yeah. it's very sweet it is they have great chemistry together in this and i like the way that the script plays with that like this idea that they can't pull off being brother and sister because although they have this like uh combative relationship like the underlying chemistry and sexual tension is there do you buy that i do to a certain extent uh, fleetingly inconsistently perhaps it's almost more romantic than it is but 
a sexual chemistry, but they have something. They have moments of sexual chemistry. And I'm going to say that moments of sexual chemistry is honestly more than you get from either Tom Cruise or Nicole Kidman generally <laughs> the in their films. <laughs> yeah, this is right. not just, I think, the sexiest that either one of them have been on screen mm. and, and maybe in their entire careers. I'm not sure I would have to look really carefully at Nicole Kidman's uh, <laughs> filmography to be sure of that. But but this is definitely like top three. Yeah. And what's wild about that is that Ron Howard is not a sexy filmmaker. No. But this is by far his... Well, not even sexiest, right? Because it's not completely successful. This is his horniest film. <laughs> this is Ron Howard channeling Robert Zemeckis. It is just weirdly sure. horny. Let's run through the uh, the Ron Howard filmography, shall we? Okay. Because I think there yeah, are some interesting ones here. About that. He really breaks in 1984 with Splash, which gets him Cocoon, which gets him Willow in 88. He does Backdraft in 1991, which was a very popular boys movie at the time. Mm. I don't know if you remember Backdraft at all about the firefighters. This is Russell Firefighter? Yeah. Then Far and Away in 1992. He does The Paper in 94. And then maybe, oh, his biggest hit for at least a decade, I would say, Apollo 13 in 1995. Oh, I forgot that was Ron Howard. That's a great movie. Ron Howard paired with Tom Hanks, basically always successful. That's a great pairing. And maybe it's because they're both kind of kind of the same guy very safe and predictable yeah. right mm-hmm. we have the mel gibson thriller ransom in 1996 we have ed tv the distaff counterpart to the truman show in 1999 and then speaking of cursed objects in 2000 the jim carrey how the grinch stole christmas oh that's a bad that one is an that's unforgivably a terrible terrible wow. film but then the following year oh a little movie called a beautiful mind holy smokes a beautiful mind was ron howard yes it was Wild. I did not know that. Okay. That wins him Best Picture and Best Director. Those are his only Academy Awards at this point. And then he really does go on this run of of interesting work. He does The Missing in 2003. He does Cinderella Man in 2005, teaming up again with Russell Crowe, of course. Then in 2006, he really does get his big swing, which is The Da Vinci Code. A very, very, (laughs) very big movie that makes almost a billion dollars. Let's remember that for this film that is... An echo chamber surrounding not much yeah. at all. It's and the worst haircut Tom Hanks has ever had. Absolutely the worst. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Squandered. Audrey Tattoo is not attractive in that film, and I don't know what and to how, do with that. How did you do that? <laughs> and then it's Frost Nixon. It's Angels and Demons, the follow-up to the Da Vinci sure. Code. It's the dilemma. It's Rush. It's in the heart of the sea. It's Inferno. And then we get this back-to-back. Oh, God, dyad of movies, this strange combination of films that show him at his best and also very, very much at his worst. We get Solo, A Star Wars Story in 2018, which is not a bad Star Wars film. Yeah. But never aspires, period. Never aspires. I was looking for a modifier there, but no, it never aspires. It has not an ounce of ambition in it. Mm -hmm. And within its very safe boundaries... It's really kind of solid. It's really kind of good. It shows like what a good team player Howard can be. And then in 2020, he has Hillbilly Elegy, which is a cataclysm of a film. An absolute bombsite disaster. It was touted to be the Oscar hit of the year. It's the adaptation of the J.D. Vance novel. It is a very close personal piece, but it has all of this superficiality right it Mm -hmm. has all of this surface level tension and no depth whatsoever as well as a fundamental political misreading of the depicted uh segment of society in the film so it's in in their ways both of these films i think show some of the highlights some of the the Mm. strengths and all of the weaknesses of ron howard as a director but all of that said still a really safe pair of hands yeah 
And you'll note that in all of those films, I didn't mention one sexy one. Not one <laughs> no, sexy you're so film. so right. <laughs> which does make Far and Away a weird kind of outlier. Mm. But yeah, overall, I think it works. And that, you know, may just be my considered opinion on the entire film. Overall, there's nothing objectionable here. Yeah. <laughs> So the film shoots in Montana between May and August of 1991 before transferring to Ireland. The whole movie is shot on 65mm film, It is, which is why it looks so good. That is a stipulation that Cruz puts in his contract. He believes that the script that he has presented has this sweep and this scope. Yeah. He wants it to be a historical epic, right? He wants yeah. it to feel like a David Lean movie because at this point in his career, he is just jumping from genre to genre to genre. I want to make the best race car movie. I want to make the best historical epic. I want to make the best lawyer drama, which we're going to get to in just a couple weeks' mm -hmm. time. There's so much in his desire to assert himself as a movie star across genre lines because, of course, this is the early 90s and we're starting to see that fragmentation really accrete, right? We've started to see you can go and be an action star and just be an action star, but right. you will never be a movie star. And he wants to avoid that. He doesn't want to be pigeonholed in right, one particular sure. subgenre. He doesn't just want to make macho military movies like Top Gun. Mm. It is, interestingly, the first film to be shot entirely on 65 mil since Tron in 1982. Wow. It is beautiful. It is. It's gorgeously shot. There have you are ever some seen... really stellar standout scenes, too. Mm -hmm. Have you seen 65 mil film in real life? No. It you're like... holding your hands out, though. Yeah, like, no, it's no, really no. Like... It's like... <laughs> Wait. Tell me all about I it. I forgot. Hang on. You're an American. Do you know what 65 millimeters no. is? Okay. It's like a foot and a half. Like, this I stuff don't... is great. No. It's like three inches across. Every frame is recognizable as a frame of film, even in that, you know, it's native size on the negative. It's wow. it's really beautiful to behold. Sure. I'm so glad that they shot in Ireland because it looks so beautiful and you really can't fake Ireland in, in my opinion I've never seen it done well cinematically I mean these are absolutely the strengths of the film right mm -hmm. the, the landscape shots that we get of Ireland at the beginning and then this bravura land run sequence which is yeah. just that set the the landscape that they chose for that it is a quarter mile wide 800 people 900 horses 200 wagons and nine Panavision system 65 cameras all rolling wow. simultaneously that's During cool. that shoot, four people broke bones I'll bet. and one horse died. Oh, my God. Though this is also a feature of Howard's career. He works very closely with American Humane mm -hmm. to make sure that all of the animals are treated exceptionally well on his set. And even after this horse died, they came out and said, not only did this meet the bare minimum of our expectations, this was a very kind and caring set toward the animals. Okay. Did you know, by the way, that the American Humane Society is just called American Humane? I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. You learned the strangest things researching movies for this podcast. <laughs> I have to ask too then, is this, it certainly looked like that was Tom Cruise riding that horse and like he was, sure was riding that horse. It sure was. Aren't those thrilling? Aren't those Absolutely. just exceptional? Absolutely. This is yes. partly, I think, what we're talking about when we talk about Tom Cruise's physicality mm -hmm. because his physicality is such an important part of what he brings to the screen as a movie star. Yeah. And this is this is it. This is all of it. This is the whole thing. This is the fighting and the pain and the drunk and the yeah. This all is of the it. whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was really taken by the boxing sequences too. I usually kind of look the other way with the boxing scenes because you mentioned Cinderella Man earlier, which sure. is a film that I love, but I find it really difficult to watch just people take that kind of a beating even though, you know, I understand that it's all pretend and it's basically a dance still. Well, not completely pretend in this movie. Oh? In this movie, there are real shots of Tom Cruise beating the hell out of these guys because you can't 
fake, particularly not really in can't. 1992. You cannot fake the impact of a fist, a bare knuckle fist yeah. against someone's torso. So there are sequences here, particularly when he's fighting the Italian at the end of the second act, mm -hmm. that, yeah, he is just actually it sure looks like beating it. the hell out of this yeah. guy. Yeah. And taking his own hits, too. Mm. Well, it's the fight choreography is stunning. I think that he's doing his best work, and it's kind of hot, even. And I'm not into boxing, as I said, but I found that, what, I don't know, titillating? Like, I felt, like I felt something in my body about seeing people exercise such excellence in their bodies. Does that make sure. sense? Yeah, no, of course, yeah. absolutely. Anyway, yeah, kind of yeah. hot. Let's talk about something that is much less successful, I think. Though, oh. so again, <laughs> by the standards of this film, unsuccessful in a, oh, I didn't really care kind of way. The score is by John Williams. Which is so weird because I saw, it was one of the first notes I wrote down, oh, score by John Williams, and then just never thought about it again, which must mean that it just wasn't very good. It is like you got a CD of royalty-free, now that's what I call Irish jig <laughs> music, and sure. just put it on shuffle. It is, yeah. yeah, it really doesn't do anything. And where it does attempt something, when we attempt moments of grandeur, it just comes off as feeling a little thin and yeah. overshadowed by much more successful versions of exactly what he's trying to do, right? The moment when they board the ship and it's like, well, that's not the Titanic music, is it? <laughs> the moment yeah. when the land run starts, you're like, oh, this is not, this is not really, really what we expect from Pretty you, John. Pretty good, but not great, yeah. And that's fine because the music for this film is remembered, but not for the John Williams score. No, it it's the Enya the song, soundtrack. right? Well, yeah. the Chieftains too. The Chieftains also provide a bit Chieftains. of a very famous Irish folk rock band provide ah. some of the incidental music that you hear through the film. Cool. But yes, you're right. It's Enya. Enya, who was born in 1961, in 1980, is already performing in her family's band, the Irish folk music legends Clannad, like you must cool. have heard of Clannad. I don't think so, no. You should. If you like Enya and you want it to have like a little more rhythm and a little less synth, oh, Clannad is absolutely is a I place want. to go. Okay. Yeah. yeah, She goes solo in 1982, but it's in 1988 that her first huge hit, Orinoco Flow, paren, sail away, close paren. Sail away, that's <laughs> is right. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that was a jam. That song hits the top of the UK singles charts. It's 24 on the Billboard Top 100 here in the US. It is initially extremely popular. Like that video gets a ton of airplay on MTV because it is cool, which is very difficult <laughs> to, imagine to imagine because the backlash is immediate and profound. Like within a couple of weeks, people are citing this as the worst offense against music in modern history, that it is so bland, that it is so new age nothing, that Anya's career kind of takes a turn. She was, for a moment, going to hmm. break as a like singer-songwriter and then has to pivot into something that is more atmospheric, something that is yeah. more, more film score-like, honestly. Still cool, though. I like Anya. When my family first bought like a big CD player with like the big speakers and the bass and everything and whatever it was, mid-90s, some, somewhere around <laughs> this time, apparently, one of the CDs that we got was Enya. We got Enya and Nat King Cole, I think, which was I always grew up listening to. the Orinoco the Flow King. album? Was it the, because the third album, Shepherd Moons, was released in 1991. That is the one that has Book of Days, which is the song from Far and Away. Yeah, I genuinely, I don't remember. I, I couldn't tell you. I just know that. Because they all kind of sounded the same to me as a kid, you know? Like, it's... <laughs> kind of supporting Enya's worst and most right. vociferous uh... critics right there. Yeah. Do you need two Enya albums? Probably not. No, like, you probably only need one Nora Jones album. You probably right. only need... Right? Right. Exactly so. 
So that third album, Shepherd Moons, is successful. Book of Days is a hit, though it is simultaneously less successful and also less derided than Orinoco Flow. The time has mm. just passed a little bit. Book of Days, this song, the one from Far and Away, is used repeatedly by James Cameron when he is putting together Titanic. He uses it as I a can temp hear track yes. all the way through. Yeah. Because it really does remind me of that. It, it's the the boarding the boat song. Exactly do, right. Do, yeah. do, 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 do. I'm like, this is so close. I can't even, I can't unpick it in my brain, which is which. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the connection that I was drawing with John Williams, too, is that yeah. the entire soundtrack of this film is extremely redolent of Titanic, except <laughs> that Titanic is better in every dimension, in every, in every regard, by a significant magnitude. Mm. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, Louise and Dallas was just mentioning in the chat that she had watched Far and Away long after it had been released and thought it was a better love story than Titanic. Thoughts? Huh. Okay. Yes. And I'm sure that anyone who's listened to me talk over on my book podcast recognizes this moment of my brain buffering. Uh, <laughs> yes. This is a better love story than Titanic because Titanic is not a very good love story would be my response. Mm. To my mind, Titanic is a much more successful film. And I say that as someone who doesn't I think really to everybody's mind love yeah, Titanic, as far honestly. As but yeah, the I, th numbers I think the romance in Titanic is surely no one's favorite part, right? You go to Titanic because you want like the splendor and the magnitude and you want the Victor Garber of it all, right? You want those <laughs> brilliant character actor performances that are seeded through the entire film. But the core romance is just boy meets girl. There's really no... Mm special spark to it there's no special magic to it and i think that hey tom cruise is better in far and away than leonardo dicaprio is in titanic that is i think that's true i on. think that's absolutely true yeah. i would love to see him do the dance sequence down in the when, when they go down to steerage and go to the party absolutely i would down love the third to see tom cruise do that oh Hell yeah yes. yeah Though that is hands in his pockets doing a little quick step yeah. yes i want to see that exactly that's interesting yeah it's hard for me because you know, Titanic came out in 1997. I was 13 years old. I saw it in theaters a dozen plus times. It's really hard for me to look at it with any objectivity at all. So I don't know that I'm qualified <laughs> to speak to this question, but I find it fascinating. We could revisit Titanic. Maybe Titanic should be on the list for next month's <gasps> bonus episodes. Titanic yes. would make an, a lot of sense alongside Far and Away, honestly. I love that. Let's write that down so we don't forget. Like right. We always do. <laughs> Let's talk a little about the cast. And speaking of Titanic, let's talk about our Billy Zane stand-in here. Let's talk about oh, yeah. Thomas Gibson. He really is giving Billy Zane. <laughs> Only Stephen not as good. Chase. Really giving Billy Zane yeah. four years before Billy Zane would give Billy Zane. <laughs> Interesting. Did anything ever become of this guy? I don't recognize yes, him. Yes, so yeah? much became of this guy. This is his first film role. He's already, at this point, pretty well established in TV, which is where he spends the bulk of his career. He will go on to play Greg in Dharma and Greg. And oh my then God, that is him. He will make it's two, the mustache. You can't tell. Yeah, he will make 256 episodes of Criminal Minds between 2005 yeah, and 2016. He sure He's the lead there, too. Wow. Also, kind of looking Henry Cavalli in this yeah. movie. It's the mustache, it's I think, mustache that does too. it. But yeah. yeah, I see yeah. it. Yeah, he's a handsome guy. It's good casting. He's fine. I, again, the writing, I think, really. The writing underserves this guy, especially. Really underserves yeah. this guy because that lack of interiority, mm -hmm. which for everyone else renders them kind of two dimensional, renders him one dimensional. One. Yeah, he is I would just agree. exactly the superficial pantomime bully that you think he's going to be. Yep. There's, there's almost a moment when Joseph takes Shannon after she has been shot toward the end of the second act yeah. when the performance is out distancing the material. But that's really all that we get from this guy, I'm afraid. 
We should also mention the brilliant Robert Prosky, who we haven't mentioned in a numbered episode of The Last Star in Hollywood, but did show up in our very first bonus episode over on the Patreon when we discussed Last Action Hero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Robert Prosky is fantastic. He's Robert Prosky is always good, and yeah. he is so good in this film. I loved the introduction to that character. I, it may be my favorite flourish in the script. So Maybe the only flourish warm. in the script, really. Maybe the only thing is unexpected. Oh, no. I love the moment when they're in the drawing room right before their house gets burned down to provide really insufficient motive force to get them to America. <laughs> he goes to the bookcase, takes out his bottle, takes a draft and puts it back. And his wife asks him, do you think that you're fooling anyone? And he says, well, no, but would you like us to talk about this publicly? Would you like, <laughs> would you like this to be our understanding that you are not the boss of me? And she says, no, I like things the way they are. Mm -hmm. So good. Where is that in the yeah. rest of this story? Yeah, you're right. That was lovely. I, I found their little romantic story on the side to be quite charming, actually. Yeah. But it's hard here in Oklahoma to support Sooners, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk a little about the I, phenomenon I, of the yes, Sooners? Yes, sure. So uh, OU Sooners, you know, that, that, that's who we are. It's our football team, of course. And, well, and our every other team. Did you know, by the way, that our gymnastics and women's basketball and women's softball are our real big sports that I, actually win the most? I did, but I also I know, know that you're that talking you to the know, listeners. But I'm talking to you, <laughs> listener. <laughs> Enough about football. Anyhow. Uh, yeah, so Sooners were the, the, the cheaters, which makes it an odd choice. Although yes. I guess we'd hate to be called the boomers now because that's got its own right. sort of. <laughs> the Sooners are the ones who crossed the landline mm -hmm. into the claimable territory prior to the noon cannon firing that signaled the start of the land run. Yep. And mostly, this is the, the shameful part of this history, I guess, mostly they were people who were kind of allowed to be there. They were railroad workers. They were marshals. Mm. They were land surveyors. Land surveyors would go, yeah, no, I'm a land surveyor. I'm going out to, uh, yeah, survey the land. Yeah, I'll just, I'll maybe be out there a couple hours early. Uh, it's fine. I have no interest in this land, obviously. No, this flag? Oh, it's my personal flag. I carry it with me everywhere I go. Anyway, that's the history of the Sooners. So we can't really celebrate the Christies because they did definitely cheat. They did definitely cheat. Also, yeah. is their claim supposed to be a joke? Is their plot of land supposed to be a joke? Because they plant their flag next to the little stream in the little declivity, and the edges of that declivity are obviously like water eroded. They have just planted their flag at the bottom of what will be the first time that there is rain, a lake. Yes, in that little portion where they planted their flag. But don't forget, there's 160 acres per person, right? Like that flag stands up for a lot of land. Well, 160 acres is a quarter square mile. Okay. So it's, it's a lot. So but, yeah. you know, that's still a substantial part of the line. <laughs> my question is not, you know, is this realistic? My question is, is this intended to be a joke that they have gone out early in the day and picked for themselves a genuinely bad plot of land? Ah, I don't think so. I don't I, I didn't read either. it as that being yeah. a joke. Lastly, before we get into our discussion of the film proper, we cannot not talk about the fantastic Colmini, who is so good, so good. in everything. He's so fantastic <laughs> in this. He breaks the year before this in The Commitments. He already has a huge career in, in film and on stage in Ireland. But the year before this is The Commitments. Do you know The Commitments? No. The Commitments is an Alan Parker movie. It's adapted from a book by Robbie Doyle. It is about working class people in Belfast who get together to form a band as a way of both breaking the shackles that bind them economically and giving themselves a social voice. It is just cool. this rough, ragged, kind of working class power struggle musical movie. It is astonishing. A, a young Glenn Hansard 
is in yeah, that film. Sure. So you can cool. see you know, John Carney obviously gets a lot of yeah. inspiration from that film too. John Carney, a filmmaker that we both really that like. love, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, The Commitments is a huge hit even outside of Ireland and really makes Colmini. Though as I say, by that point, he already has a career in television because we have to talk about 52 episodes of Star Trek <laughs> The Next Generation and we have to talk about 173 episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and we have to talk about Chief Miles O'Brien. Yes. Maybe my favorite character in that era of oh, the wow. show. Who is not Jean-Luc Picard. Who's not Picard, of yeah. course. <laughs> Miles O'Brien is fantastic. The arc that they give him in Deep Space Nine, where he gets the first real human friendship. We get to explore what it is like for two guys who are very different to be friends wow. in space. Nice. Is really good. He gets married, of course, in Next Generation. He has a baby in DS9. He has baby Molly, who is played by the cutest little actress you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> Miles O'Brien is a legend. Cole yeah. Meany is Cole a Meany legend. Terrific. And fantastic in this film. Mm -hmm. He's wonderful. I can see why they gave him that little bit of narrative voiceover in the beginning, even though we did not need it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when the film comes out, as I implied earlier by talking about the Roger Ebert review, mm. the consensus is extremely mixed. Yeah. People are generally somewhat dismissive of the film's lack of substance and, of course, the accent work. Yeah. Let's talk about the accents because... You know, I did not think it, it was as bad as everybody says that it is, as, as even I said. That's one of the ways that I would tease this episode. It's like, oh, and the worst accent ever. We're going to hear it. Ha ha ha. It was fine, I thought. Like, it's not great, fine. but fine. And honestly, yeah, the big surprise to me was that there really isn't much of a gulf between Kidman and Cruz. No. If anything, all. I thought that she was poorer. The problem that we have with Cruz is that we're not writing dialectically for the Irish accent. He is giving yes. a, like, it's not That's good. a really good point. He's saying American things he's in an saying Irish American accent. Things. Yeah. As we can see right at the beginning of the film, when he's getting beaten up by his brothers and they talk about him losing control of his ass. Ass does Such not a weird mean standout. Yeah. but in Ireland. So they wouldn't say that, like, that is not a pun that works in Ireland. So when you have Irish actors, and those two guys are actually Irish actors, yeah. when you have them saying this dumb line, the accent sounds false and Even flat. in their mouth, yeah. Yeah, because it's it's just not authentic. So that, I think, is a lot of the problem with Cruz. It's a B-grade accent at best. Sure. But that's a lot of the problem with Cruz. Kidman gets better writing. Her writing is just more oratorical. It's more stagey. Obviously, mm. they have a lot of fun writing this kind of slightly heightened stuff for her. Yeah. And she delivers it very well. So no one misses out, really. But... Yeah, the accents are just not that bad. I yeah, think. I, yeah, I think you're right. Not you, you keep saying objectionable, and I agree. Just it's just not, it's objectionable. not objectionable. It's completely right? fine. Yeah. yeah. And as I say, the film kind of limps over the finish line a little yeah. bit. It makes 58 million domestic off of a budget of around 60 million. Obviously, this is a huge swing for Ron Howard, particularly at this stage of his career. But overall, internationally, it clears almost 140 million. Okay. So even when you factor in, you know, promotions and marketing. There's still a healthy profit left at the end, even okay. after Tom Cruise takes his $12 million. <laughs> and with that, let's get into it. Ireland in 1892, after a century of oppression, bad things are coming. As we said, right from the jump, this movie looks amazing. Like you can put so beautiful. one of these 70 millimeter cameras on a helicopter and just fly it around the coast of Ireland <laughs> for an hour and a half. Best picture is what yeah. I'm saying. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Really, really good. So we open on this politicized confrontation sure. here in the village and we get... Pitchfork politics. Exactly, right? And we get Joseph Donnelly Sr. being mm -hmm. accidentally struck down at this point. He is carried back home. He 
dies, he comes back, he dies again. <laughs> and, and you should be laughing because it's ridiculous. Like, it's it's a ridiculous opening. It's extremely ridiculous. Uh-huh. It puts us in the modality, though. And I think this is hinted by the presence of the guy from the village, right? Of the storyteller right, from the, the village. Right, the storyteller guy. It puts oh, us in the modality. Guys. Exactly yeah. right. This is... This is a yarn, right? This is an yeah. Irish fable that we're getting here, except nothing in the rest of the film is going to feel like this. So weird. Until we do it again with Joseph Jr. right at the end of the movie. <laughs> but we'll get to all of that. So tonally, this is a wild swing, mm-hmm. but how does it work for you in terms of situating you inside of the film, right? Texts teach you how to yeah. read them. Does this opening teach you it, how to read it, this film? It does. I ultimately wish that the film was a little more, a little deeper, a little uh, more complex, but I think it tells you what to expect. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We cut out from there to the gorgeous farm right on the edge of the coast, right on the yeah. edge of that cliff, which is, yeah, just yeah. absolutely stunning. I would fight for that land. Cruz mm-hmm. is, I think, immediately impressive. We get that he's, you know, pugilistic and we get the first of uh-huh. the best three beat in cinema history. With the, <laughs> you really like that. Play. I love it. Because <laughs> the thing is, it's actual literary theory, right? I think it was Robert <laughs> McKee who said that this is how you build a three beat. Mm-hmm. You, you, you establish, you escalate, and then you horse. <laughs> That's what it has to be now. I'm going to be dissatisfied with every three beat that doesn't end with a horse getting punched. <laughs> Do you, re- you really don't love that three beat? I don't, I don't love him punching the horse. I liked the other two beats quite a lot. To be clear, I don't like him punching the horse. I love punching the horse being the third beat <laughs> in this three beat that we established. Yeah. Uh, okay. If he just punched a horse for no reason, right, I right. would think that that was shoddy filmmaking. <laughs> sure. And if we were having trouble determining the tone of this piece with the death and return and death again of Joseph Donnelly Sr., what do you make of the scene where Joseph Jr. is given the secret rebel code word, Captain Midnight, and then sent out into the street where everyone is already laughing because they know that he's going to go and try and kill his landlord? It's weird. It's weird, right? It's weird. Yeah. Uh... And unlike the preceding scene, that doesn't feel weird to me in a... Oh, what a tale I should tell you of Ireland. <laughs> it feels weird in a, I don't know what this film is going to be yet. Yeah. Weird, a little bit tasteless, maybe. Like, just in general, the handling of politics in this film, I think, is bad. I, I think that Ron Howard really biffs it. He decides instead to make the movie fun. And because of that, it makes things that are actually atrocious comical. And right. I don't think that's... Right. The way to, to, and, you know, to do it. We hinted at that a little bit, but you're completely right. Mm-hmm. Whether you're telling immigrant stories of, of various populations coming to the United States in this period in history in particular, or you're talking about, you know, westward expansion, particularly into the former Indian territories, you were talking about groups of oppressed people yeah. ganging up on groups of other oppressed people, right? It is yeah. a real squalid, dirty, gutter fight. Because the people who have the power and the money are keeping it for themselves. Right. They are perpetuating this social inequity. Right. In fact, we make so light of it that by the end, when the Christies get their land, we're like, oh, they're so cute. We're Look on their kissing. side. Aww. <laughs> yeah. Because Christy turns to his wife and says, let's treat this like a beginning and not like an end or whatever the line is. <laughs> yes. it's like, oh, you're right. I'm with you, wealthy landowner from England. <laughs> Ron Howard, like, can't we all just get along? <laughs> That's what I mean about him being apolitical, though, yeah. right? It is this it is yeah. this kind of centrist, you know, everyone's just trying their best. And it's <laughs> 2023, and almost no, no one not. is trying their best. No one is trying their best. <laughs> yep. No, yep. most people are trying their best. But mm. to, yeah, keep your eyes deliberately averted from 
the political reality of this would be one thing. You're right. You can absolutely turn this into just a, a lyrical Irish fairy tale. But then you don't get to use the English as right. monsters and as a, a motive political force. And you certainly don't get to redeem them in the end. That's yeah. such a weird beat. <laughs> Because we even try and lay runway for this with Christy saying to Joseph much later in the story, I never heard about what happened to your dad. And I'm so right. sorry that you're a farm goat burn. It's like, come on now. <laughs> yeah. Where did you think your incredible palatial manor house came right. from? Right, right. But this is all just, you know, the call of adventure. This is all just getting Joseph started on his, his yeah, his murderous quest, I suppose. In a pub far from home, he stops in for a drink and Christy comes in. And this is where we get our introduction to our nominal antagonist of this story. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned this earlier, but this is this is so lovely. I love how much he subverts expectations. I think the performance is pitch perfect i think he's great from everyone in the bar too everyone that moment bar, where he yeah. comes in and, and someone asks him how he's doing he says oh oppressed <laughs> and everyone has that moment of tension and then it resolves it's yeah uh it's really good yeah and cruise throughout this too i think very Terrific. strong character work. Mm -hmm. yeah he's doing so much just on his face in this whole movie yeah i think my favorite moment of cruise acting is when he's up on the stage and Nicole Kidman's character, God, Shannon, Shannon says to him, this could be how we get our land or whatever it is, says us. And he's like, us? And then you just, you're holding yeah, his face from, oh my moment. God. So good. Luminous. Yeah. So good. So perfect. So much happening. So Joseph stalks Prosky on the way home that evening and suddenly we're in legend because anytime we're shooting mm -hmm. like a night mm -hmm. scene with this blue tinted light, it just feels like legend now. <laughs> His donkey runs away, his nerve wavers. Instead, he sleeps in the stable, and in the morning, we, alongside Joseph, are introduced to Shannon, who shakes out her hair and undoes her buttons and is basically extremely hot and feisty. Basically extremely hot and feisty. Extremely yeah. hot and She's feisty. She's really, really stunning. Yeah. And there's no one else that looks like her or moves like her. Absolutely And right. I find that really just it's the thing about Hollywood casting that's so fascinating and the thing that they tell you like I took a acting for the camera class with a guy who does like all of the casting here in Oklahoma for stuff yeah who was saying you really can't think about like how well you did or how you performed on something it doesn't mean that you were bad if you didn't get it because sometimes yes. there's just like a certain kind of energy and the best thing you can do is to find out what that energy is that you bring because that's what people cast. Like My when you cast Nicole Kidman, you're not looking for a tall redhead. You're it's it's something bigger and more and different. It's that yeah. fairy thing that she does. It's that like mischief thing that she sometimes has. And and chemistry, obviously, and chemistry with of course, too. Yeah. yeah, there's a, a happier version of the opening of this week's podcast where instead of talking about stolen land, I was going to do a little quiz for you about couples who have appeared in movies together and why they're always bad. <laughs> yes, true. I did want to call out, though, you're right that Nicole Kidman is a singular actress, I mm. think. But there is a family resemblance between her and Barbara Babcock, who plays her mother oh, yeah. in this. It's I really casting. like the way the two play off each other. I think that works very well. And this is just the best, right? We get the glimpse of her through the stall as he is spying on her. We get her being so resourceful, so feisty. We get the throwing of the horseshoe, which also circles back at the end because yeah. everything in this everything film is going to circle back at the end of the movie but then the thrusting of the pitchfork through the wall of the stall is just so good and so sudden and yeah. so authentic and immediate yeah and then and look then, on her face when she actually stabs him <laughs> really great work yeah. here i think and this is exactly the kind of strategy i think that the script employs to subvert but also one-up your expectations mm. you know we get the meat cute and instead of running off to get her father she also just stabs him first <laughs> i think it works beautifully 
and from there the kind of the comedic tone i suppose continues because he hobbles out into the into the quad of this palatial manor house gorgeous location the gun misfires and Mm -hmm. he drops to the gravel and i still at this point don't really know what to make of it it feels you know there is a tradition i suppose in kind of folk storytelling of you know the hapless fool right the the guy who goes on a quest who undertakes a journey and just continually stumbles continually runs into misadventure and kind of meanders his way toward his purpose Mm. without ever really accomplishing his goal from there, it's a short hop upstairs to where Joseph is recovering in bed. And one of the more, I suppose, enduring and iconic scenes of this movie, if any scene in this film is iconic and enduring, right. it is definitely Nicole Goodman peeking under the mixing bowl that has been placed just so to yeah. preserve Tom Cruise's modesty here. And the story here is that Ron Howard is not satisfied with the response that he's getting from Nicole Kidman. They keep doing take after take after take, and she's not delivering whatever, I don't know, nebulous, yes, mischievous, <laughs> puckish thing it is that he wants from yeah. her. So he and Tom Cruise conspire to remove the modesty sock that he's supposed to be wearing <laughs> under the mixing bowl so that the look on her face is actually the look of someone who is, well, apprehending their husband's penis. <laughs> In real life, right? Like, yeah, like, but also like in its most dormant form. <laughs> you don't know. That's a fairly large mixing bowl. And Tom Cruise is not a large man. I mean. Well, I just mean if he's passed out, there's not. I can't imagine there's. <laughs> right. But we're getting caught up here in the, in the clash between the diegesis and the mimesis. Yes. yes. <laughs> You're it's, right. It's Shannon cute. is apprehending <laughs> Joseph's seems, penis at rest, yes, <laughs> as it were. Yes. Which but, yeah. seems like, you know. An unfortunate way to have your first penis experience, but she seemed happy with it. Would have to bow. I I love the look of mischief and then her desire to take another look. It's, of course, very strong. (laughs) It is kind of the scene that you would expect if you and I were sitting down to write that scene. This would be like the first draft pass. Mm -hmm. But she brings, Mm -hmm. yes, exactly right, that mercurial playfulness to it that, that I really like. Yeah. Shortly afterwards, we get uh, the awful and odious Stephen Chase showing up. Mm-hmm. We get Shannon playing rebellious piano. We get Joseph punching through the door with a cloth wrapped around oh, his yeah. hand in order to escape. But all of this is for nothing because he's just going to stumble down the steps. Right. And then we're going to reset back to the room again. Yeah, We're using this as an opportunity to exhibit character. We're using this to demonstrate who these people are in motion. But these people are not enough of anything that right. we need to see this We just twice. don't need to keep doing it. Yeah, I, I already agree. knew everything about Shannon from the moment she took her hair down and undid her buttons. Mm-hmm. I thought, I know this girl. Or, or at least plunged the pitchfork yes. through the stall wall. Yeah. <laughs> There's also this weird anachronistic beat of Chase challenging Joseph to a duel. Yeah. Despite the fact that this is 50 years after the last duel Anybody in England and Ireland. anything like that. Yes. Yeah. So odd. Violently illegal by this point in history. That night, Shannon decides that she is running away and tries to recruit Joseph with the promise of land in America. And this, I think, is a great example of where we see the political reality of 1992. I really love that she is the one who decides to go and recruits him as her serving boy. Mm -hmm. Does that work for you? Yes. I love it that we give her something to do. I love that she takes so much action herself that she really leads the action a lot. So I don't know if this counts as like dual protagonists. It feels like it to me. Nominally would, I suppose, Nominally, at this yeah. point, but he controls so much of the shape of the action. And then, it's true. And then we leave her behind. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 When, yeah. when their view, viewpoints bifurcate, we follow him completely. Mm-hmm. Well, barely follow him. We cut eight months ahead and then he has fantasies about a scene we saw five minutes ago. <laughs> so it's a little hard <laughs> to track right. the narrative flow there. But yes, she is definitely mm-hmm. empowered. She is certainly in possession of 
the more immediate desire, not the greater desire, right? Because we've gifted Joseph this this desire for land and this interesting combination of of identification with the land. Mm-hmm. It is both his and he is its, right? It, it is both a thing that he possesses, but it is also, as his father said, his soul. Right, yeah. And that's potentially really interesting. And even if it's not, you know, broken into and analyzed at all, it is still a huge, powerful motive force, right? When he rouses from his slumber here because Nicole Kidman has been peeking at his penis, <laughs> it is because it, it, he rouses with this desire for his land. That's what he wants. Mm, mm-hmm. So while his motivation is perhaps deeper, hers is certainly much more immediate. And I love that it is simply, I want to go to America because it is a modern place. Right, yeah. That's exhilarating. Mm-hmm. I really love what that does for her and her energy here in the room as she's bustling around, getting ready, climbing in from the ladder through the window and then collecting all of the various bits and pieces that she has yeah. with this one flyer of land exclamation point. <laughs> Pretty good stuff. It's darling. Like really yeah. quite good. Yeah. And I like how it sets up their dynamic of him not being in the least interested in her aristocracy i suppose in her position yeah and her learning that as soon as she leaves this place she won't have that anymore and also i think yeah we get to see we get to see joseph as a man of principle almost Mm -hmm. right yeah he doesn't just want to go to he wants his land like he's going to move on that but that is actually yeah that is maybe legitimate character development that we're going to see he Mm -hmm. wants his land but he will settle for someone else's (laughs) yes He's also committed to this idea of the duel. And how do you feel about the comedically misty Irish morning duel? Stupid. It's where dumb. the mist is so thick that we cannot see the other competent 30 yeah. paces away. Yeah. It's, it's dumb. We don't need this at all. Does I, it work comedically for you? Uh, a little bit. I guess I chuckled. Okay. okay. Sure. I, I mean, it also seemed horribly dangerous because there were so many other people there too like yes. you could shoot anybody that's that great moment right when they're just about to do it they're about to turn and christy like squirrels away yeah. from joseph because he's like, oh no i am in the line of fire this yeah. is extremely dangerous we have the the taking of the cart and the riding off and then we hard cut that is our first act we are yeah. exactly 40 minutes into this film and that is our first act Smart. it is to the page i guarantee they had one of those hollywood script bibles that is your first 60 pages should be this yeah and we do it all and we do it, you know, metronomically, if not in a way that is, you know, musical. Mm. It's, it's just a very, very firm and dependable rhythm at yeah. this point. And then, yeah, the film suffers a little bit from comparison to Titanic, right? <laughs> yes. For all that we spent five minutes on this book. Did you catch this shot as she starts walking with Maguire, who mm-hmm. is from America, is from or is Irish, but is now living in Boston and wants to tell her all about the colonies, you know? They do this long walk down the side of the ship. It is like a 90-second uninterrupted take. It is this gorgeous, oh, long, tracking shot. I'll maybe show you after is we're done here. Is this when uh, Joseph is holding the parasol? Yes. Yeah, okay. But that's the thing. It's a really great cinematic achievement. Yeah. But Ron Howard's style is so unflashy that, you don't that even it doesn't notice draw it attention to itself. Yeah, yeah it's oh, just, that's too bad. It's really but a full 90-second backward tracking shot along wow. the side of the ship. With a lot of dialogue going on, mm-hmm. too. It's it's a really nice sequence there. We are suddenly, though, in Boston. Shannon goes off with Maguire, and Joseph finds his own way, and that's the end of the movie. That's really where we... Uh... Shake hands, and off we go. What do you think of Nicole Kidman standing in the street, screaming, my spoons, my spoons, my spoons? <laughs> that's kind of funny. I feel like I am interrupting this account of the film every two minutes to say, what do you think of this ridiculous comic moment that we have here? <laughs> 
How does this film work? It doesn't quite work, I think, is the problem. It does a lot more than I think this description would lead you to believe if you hadn't seen it, right? There is (laughs) a magic. It almost accommodates all of this outlandish, outright comedy. And this, you know, stark political reality and all of the very deep melodramatic character stuff that we're doing. I'm confused by this film. Yeah, no, it it is confusing. This should be devastating and it should be what brings Joseph on side to helping her because she is actually. Well, and it it is. He fights to recover her her bag and they go off together and he's he immediately goes back to the the little urchin, this one Irish urchin in all of Boston. (laughs) Yeah. Who knows everybody in Confederate. Like Dermody or something. That's a strange <laughs> yeah. name. Yeah. And then they go off to meet with uh, Colmini. Introductory shot of Colmini. Direct POV with his dukes raised, <laughs> throwing a punch right at the camera. Yep. How good is that? Sure. It's perfect. I love it. <laughs> I love well, that he doesn't win that fight, too. That He's actually not that great at fighting. That's interesting. Because he's distracted, of course. There's sure. some interesting stuff happening mm-hmm. here, too. Yeah. About the presence of women and the presence of kind of an ordered masculine society. You know, obviously all of the women that we meet are sex workers or sex worker adjacent, right? right? They're either dancers, in which case they are, you know, being objectified as objects of sexual desire or they are actual literal sex workers. Right. Mm -hmm. And the relationship between the men and those women seems to me to be very interesting and very complex and probably a little candy coated, probably a little, a little more romantic. Yes. And a little less grim and real than it would have been at the time except for the one guy the right exactly yeah, that burke asked for the strawberry tart yes, yes that guy exactly mm-hmm. right but even then the political reality of yes we're in america but this is boston mm-hmm. like we already have lines of power and those are fiercely protected mm-hmm. and demarcated the idea just of kelly being like the ward boss right yeah. a thing that doesn't really exist meaningfully anymore but was such a figure of localized power that he would know everybody and would have huge local authority right like when he tells the cops to bugger off when he kicks somebody out yeah great moment i thought Mm -hmm. yeah his his characterization is so strong and call me yeah i don't have a bad word to say about him in this film not one agreed you mentioned earlier how charming it is that joseph and shannon have so much sexual chemistry that no one really believes that they're brother and sister the traditional setup i think would be that we would play more with that, right? That we would have to put them in intimate positions where they're pretending to be brother and sister, even though they're not really. Were you at all surprised or disappointed (laughs) or relieved that we didn't get any of that? That it's just this this superficial aspect of the characterization that we then drop the moment that it's convenient to do so. Yeah, I, th- I was fine with that, I think. Yeah, yeah I really <laughs> You didn't was. need them to have to pretend to no. be yeah, like, brother what does that even mean? in front of a priest or anything. Yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so we very quickly get our heroes established in their room and we get that great scene where Joseph's looking at the skyline and says, I think I like America. Yeah. That's a really great. nice moment. Yeah. You know, the is. more I think about it, I, I really do think that Joseph has an interesting character arc. I think so too. It's not huge, mm-hmm. but it is at least there and it is certainly, I think, the only one in the story. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I suppose so. Do you think she Shannon, grows a little bit do you too think though, so? I think. Yeah. In what way? Well, I just think of how much more in control of herself and her situation she seems there where she's hanging clothes on the line right before the land run and when she's riding the horse on her own. Like she has achieved a certain kind of autonomy and capability, I think, that certainly, she was nowhere near having in the beginning. Certainly the clothes washing, yes. I mean, we were introduced to her, of course, riding her horse and being a, right. a capable horsewoman on her own. But yeah, certainly the washing of the clothes, the, the way that that is replicated where we get to see her mother 
right. badly washing clothes in exactly the same way she did earlier in the film. It's very like A to B. You establish this mm-hmm, so that you can call back mm-hmm. to it. It's very like, you know, filmmaking 101, but it is effective it nonetheless. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I wonder if there's something that we could make of, you know, a, a, a feminine hero's journey, a heroine's journey, if you will, mm-hmm. that kind of inverts the heroic journey, right? The hero leaves home in order to accomplish something that he can bring back and change home. Whereas it seems to me that Shannon's story is kind of one of of giving up her goal in the middle of the film only to have that goal reasserted at the end. She kind of is the person at the end of this film that she was at the beginning of the film, right? She doesn't change as much as she resets back to who she really is. Hmm, interesting. I need to give that some more Maybe. thought and see yeah. how that shakes out, Yeah. So this is when we jump back to Ireland to discover that uh, Shannon has, in fact, been writing to her father this whole time. But it is just a zag. This little moment between this the two of them, weird. this domestic <laughs> tension here is just a zag to distract us from the imminent rebel uprising right. in Ireland. The setting of the house ablaze. Stephen Chase coming in to rescue the Christies and salvaging that photograph of Shannon, too, which will also come back so powerfully mm-hmm. later in the film. I mean... You can kind of see Ebert's point, right? That it is just a string of coincidence because there's nothing of more or sufficient substance beneath the script to motivate anything more than just, and then this happens, isn't that convenient? Right, right, yeah. By the time we cut back to Boston, though, we now have Shannon and Joseph working in a chicken factory? Yeah, yeah. You know, where where chickens are made. We get the uh, great sequence where they go back to their room and are mutually spying on each other. As that is they a great are getting sequence. So, mm-hmm. probably the hottest in the film. I right? think so. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I really love the way that we are giving them equal time and that the camera is equally objective of each of mm-hmm. them in turn. Yes, I like that. Really yeah. nice, sensitive filmmaking. The kind of thing that I would like a little more of in this movie, honestly. Yeah. And then we get the great character turn that overcome by horniness, Tom Cruise... <laughs> Just got to go punch somebody. <laughs> so much sexual frustration. Poor kid. He's just got to beat up someone. <laughs> and then when we make that textual later. Which is so funny because you're, you're literally living in a brothel. Like, well, just go knock sure. on a door and give somebody a dollar. He's not, a good Catholic not boy. What's he going to yeah. do? Yeah, I suppose you're right. Is he a good Catholic well, boy? Well, we Maybe. don't. That's the thing is that we don't really get into it, though. He certainly implies that his relationship with Grace is chaste. That's true. She has that great line later where we make absolutely his sexual frustration as a motive force for him getting into fights. Textual. Uh-huh. Like, he just had a lot of gunpowder to blow off. <laughs> Good movie. Good. You're understanding Good. why characters do things. I Grace, actually. Grace I thought she terrific. was so great. Yeah. Very well performed. Very well written. Had such a sparkle in her eyes. I loved the way she talked about Joseph Donnelly's physicality and all those things that I was just saying about like, it's just feels good to yeah. watch him i don't know <laughs> yeah no that scene where she talks with shannon about what kind of man is he yeah it's really it is, lovely actually. it is nice and yep. this is our exact midpoint as i mentioned earlier he comes home four bucks in his boot yep he has a path now we're going to make it to the land run i mm-hmm. guess from here joseph wins fight after fight shannon continues plucking chickens in the scene where shannon goes to look at the dress in the window right before she <laughs> is drinking did you recognize that dress okay so I saw it and I thought, huh, I know that dress. And so I was thinking that she would wear it again later in the movie, but then I forgot all about it. But do tell. <laughs> it's Mary Steenburgen's dress from Back to the Future 3. 
And I am so thrilled about of this. Of course it is, because it's such an iconic piece of wardrobing. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, I do not have that thing that makes me very sensitive to costume. I just, mm. I, I can't recognize individual pieces of, of costume from one movie to another. But it turns out, of course, that this movie and Back to the Future 3 were both costumed by the same person, Joanna Johnston. Uh-huh. And that, yeah, this is, this is a dress? recapitulation of, of Clara's dress from Back to the Future 3. It is a fantastic it. dress, too. It is a great dress, Yeah. yeah. This part of the film, I think, really works beautifully and actually really does start to string some scenes together into an organic whole because we have Shannon and her friends out on the street doing a little window shopping, looking at a few boots. Then they see Joseph and he's all full of himself and he's got another new hat. And yeah, we, we I liked the of, whole thing with all the hats, actually. I thought that was very it's charming. It's pretty funny, right? <laughs> it's good. <laughs> and we're moving from See, you like my hat. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Moving from scene to scene here, kind of building this rhythm so that when he goes back into the brothel and she's playing piano and she tells him that she's drunk and he says, I was outside for two minutes. I just, <laughs> how are you drunk already? There's nothing like that. There's yeah. no continuity from scene to scene in the rest of the film. But that really, really works. This whole sequence, I think, is, is really a high point yeah. of the film. Yeah, I would agree. And yeah, this ends with him dumping Shannon into the bathroom and demanding a compliment for his imaginary hat. Just... <laughs> Not a sentence, honestly, that you get to say about a lot of Tom Cruise films. You're not wearing that. I don't remember Just the point see, in Mission Impossible so Ghost Protocol where he demands a compliment <laughs> on his imaginary hat. It, this might be, uh, is that my favorite scene between the two of them? This scene, and then I, th I think it really works the scene when they're in the mansion after they uh, have been kicked out in the snow. I yes. think both those scenes really work, but this one particularly where he's thrown her in the water and but this one this is whole exchange is so much more grounded. It's oh, so yeah. much more like authentic. We're, yes. we're in a real like rarefied fairy space. I am mm. sure that someone out there has written the version of this. But did you know that after they get kicked out of the brothel by Mean Mean Cole Meanie, they die in the snow and everything <laughs> that happens after is a dream? Facts. Thanks. Screen rant. It's a yeah. little match girl story. <laughs> Uh, no, I love the physicality here. Yeah. I love how like immediately she goes into the water. It's a very well choreographed piece because yep. obviously, you know, you, you know the, that the length take or of else the tub. It's a lot of oh, dresses that you're putting reset, on. that's a long reset, isn't it? You're absolutely long right. Long reset. Yeah. Yep. No, I love it. And I love his... I love his inability to articulate what it is that he really wants from her. Yeah. I love... Like, we're making fun of, you know, say you like my hat, but... Uh, it's really strong because he doesn't know what it is that he wants from her. He mm -hmm. can't articulate it. He can't even necessarily comprehend it because that crossing of social line and social division, even here in America, is still a thing that is not done. There's yeah. no such thing as social mobility at this point in history, except that he's achieved it. He is yeah. in the process of achieving it, I suppose. To some extent, it's, at least, yeah. Yeah. I, I really genuinely love that. A, a real high point in the film. Mm -hmm. And I love, too, that we use this as the motivation for her to go off and dance the burlicue. Yep. What do you think of her on stage in her... I mean, it's it's so funny to watch this thinking that we're, you know, 10 years out from Moulin Rouge, right? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. She looks great, obviously. She's doing a pretty nice job considering her upbringing, I think. Sure. Like, she's yeah. not great, but she's also doing the work. I love to see her just... I say I don't love to see her doing this, obviously, but it's wonderfully done how she's, like, almost fighting the other girls for the coins that yes. are being thrown on stage. Like, you really see her desperation That's here. That's a real bit of subtlety. It's very true for her it's true for many many women even today that that's just the best way and the quickest way to make the book it just is and yeah. i think it, i i really like the argument that they have when she's like what are you talking about you're out getting in fights every day for money and he's like well it's not the same thing there's a big difference or something and there's no difference she says i think she says as much but it's really well the zag that she makes is that she can mm -hmm. make as much money as him 
not the and by inference mm-hmm. it's that it's the same i am putting my body to its its primary sure. social use right right yours for but violence I, mine for sex so she's clearly drawing I don't, equivocation. I don't think like as the burlicue dancer that she expected to no. be treated in the same way as the the prostitutes were because no, I think when you're... she is pulled onto someone's lap and she's like absolutely not yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I like very much the fact that we don't draw a firm distinction between the brothel girls and the burlicue dancers, right? I think that that I need to look up the etymology of burlicue and figure yeah. out how we got there because it's really endearing. It must be burlesque. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah I, th- I think it probably is just an yeah. inability to pronounce or parse burlesque. <laughs> but yeah, burlicue is extremely endearing. I will yeah. find some kind of etymological reference for that on the internet and mm-hmm. add that to the show notes too, if for no other reason than I don't want to accidentally say burlicue in my real life <laughs> when I'm not talking about far and away. But no, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's a very simple kind of superficial interpretation of what they are doing here, right? Each is selling their body, but yeah. it's done with a certain amount of verve and a certain amount of distinction. And really, there is a symmetry in her being pulled onto Burke's lap, right? Her being objectified for her body past the point of her her consent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Joseph being sucker punched by the Italian guy, which is also, it's it's the same kind of mirroring of, yes, I know that I agreed to do this, but within certain bounds, and these are not those bounds. Right. And yeah, it's a brutal, brutal beating. I thought that I had kind of adjusted my expectation to where this film was going to go in terms of its physical violence but this is really hard to watch i agree i agree yeah and from there it's downhill but fast beaten and bloodied joseph sees chase out in the street passing around photos of shannon which is an odd moment yeah again another fearful coincidence right here right yeah and something i don't like about what it says about joseph too that we now spend three days wandering around in the cold and he doesn't immediately say look i know where your parents are i can take you to them Yes, yes. Because I could see her saying, absolutely not over my dead body. You can drag my cold corpse there. You need to have that scene. I completely agree. You're completely right. Kelly takes all the money that they've saved and kicks them out. Freezing on the street in the Boston winter, they finally take shelter in an abandoned house where Shannon is reminded of the life she used to have. They share their dreams of the land that they want and they kiss. And And it's a Christmas movie. It's so dreamy. It's so romantic. It's so glowy. Just the way that we're shooting all of this. Moonlight reflected through snow, reflected through glass, reflected on mirrors. It's wild how good this looks. But also, yeah, it feels very, very Mm dreamlike. What do you think of this moment where she asks him, where he he offers provision, right? He offers to serve her so that she can feel like the life she used to have. Mm -hmm. And she says that she doesn't want that. She just wants them to be together. Yeah. Does that... Work. I mean, we like the shape of it from mm-hmm. a distance, right? We, we we like what this is doing. This is good motivation for a romance, certainly. Do we like the execution there? Mostly, I think I do. I, I really do love the setup. I find it very romantic that he really does just want her to stop worrying for a moment. Sure. Like, he asks her to pretend, and I find that very charming. Um, I wish I loved more. It, it has, like, the cadence of a line... Like, here's looking at you, kid, that people are going to say all the time, you know, pretend you love me. But it, again, but, if this film were a bigger it, hit, this film would so? be quoted all the time. Yeah. Pretend you love me. I think it's good. Pretend you love me is at least as good a line as draw me like one of your French girls. <laughs> like, at Fact. least as good. True. Right? True. Yeah. Pretend you love me is is really powerful yeah. in context. And, and yeah, works as well enough, I think, as a standalone line. Yeah. And he says, I pretend I love you. Yeah, it's good. 
And I do remember also this really capturing my imagination when I was a kid, too, and finding it very romantic. I almost certainly only watched like the TBS version or whatever, but it's really quite chaste anyway. So I don't even think they probably made any cuts. There is a version of this film that aired on TV in the mid 1990s with uh-huh. 40 minutes of extra footage added so that they could run it in a two hour slot one night and then a two hour slot the following night. Wow. Yeah. Three hours of Far and Away, both to four over two nights with commercials. Holy smoke. Right? Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, and I did go looking, but to the best of my knowledge, that extended cut has never been released. I you think it was can't. actually edited together by the TV company. But yeah, wow. it's never been compiled on a Blu-ray or anything like that. Huh. At least that I found. And honestly, I don't know that I want it. I don't know that I yeah, need another 14 minutes. I don't need another 40 minutes. minutes. It already drags yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I find it lovely. I, th- I think I haven't talked about the... We talked, of course, about how beautiful everything looks, but the I guess it's the color grading. The way that everyone looks so pleasantly flushed and pink. Yeah. I, I don't know how much that is color grading. I don't because know. It, and how much it is just very consistent makeup and a so, great yeah. camera and great lighting. I'm not really sure. Is it stunning that this movie was not even nominated, given particularly the Academy's desire to give Ron Howard a statuary? Right? <laughs> we want to give this guy trophies. We want to give his films trophies. I find it incredible that this film wasn't even nominated for costumes or makeup. Oh, yeah, that is incredible. There is something, you know, that we, we've been talking about, about how the whole movie feels a bit confectionary. You know, it doesn't quite have the grittiness or urgency that you would expect. And in in that particular instance, I think I, I think I like that. I really like how, again, flushed and healthy everybody looks. And that, I think, maybe gives the movie some of its sexiness as it is mm-hmm. or what there is to have. Well, I had to go look it up. So the costume design nominees for the 1993 Oscars for films, which were released in 1992, mm-hmm. the winner is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, the nominees sure. are Toys, which can what? get right out of here. Yeah. Absolutely not. Malcolm X, which is a very sharp uh, looking movie, actually. Mm. Howard's End, which is legendary. Yes. And Enchanted course. April. Oh, Wow. You know, I was thinking last night about how I would adapt Enchanted April for the screen. It's such a beautiful book. It's been done once. It's been done once <laughs> and not not perfectly. I would say quite imperfectly because they relied so much on voiceover. God, it's hard not to because sure. Von Arnhem's prose is just so gorgeous and it's such interiority in the characters. Almost exclusively like, interiority. How else yeah. do yeah. you try to get into the heads of these women without voiceover? But I mean, that's what voiceover is for. I think that. If you and, want and done to, to replicate effect, yeah. the intimacy of the novel, yes. that is the only way to it's do it. It's the only way. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, going on. That might be the kind of thing that you could do with a you know lushly produced radio drama. I wish we lived, you know, oh, aside from the but BBC. No, the whole point of adapting <laughs> it is so you get to see the villa and you sure. get to see the flowers. I don't know. In any case, our heroes are interrupted during their smoochy, sexy time by (laughs) the window there, by the family returning home, which is just a bad time for everyone, honestly. They flee and Shannon is shot in the back. Joseph carries her through the streets. We get eventually to the the residence Mm -hmm. of her family, of the Christie family. Chase cleans the wound and Joseph leaves. Which is also weird. Where, where does he have any kind of medical? Oh, no. He he's suddenly using... becomes, I know it's bourbon, yeah. but he seems to, he speaks with great authority. Like, oh, she's going to be fine. I just have to clean the wound. And I'm like, oh, what do yeah. you know? Well, it's because the film doesn't care, really. Because we're, the film we're not doesn't care. giving this guy, <laughs> we're, we're going through the motions of this part of the yes. plot. And then yes. Joseph is going to leave. And that is the end of the second act. We have exactly 40 minutes left mm. on the clock. We are literally at 140 out of a 220 running time. And, Again, 
metronomic. Yeah. But maybe we're not doing more than we absolutely have to. Right. Just yeah. to demarcate this. Particularly when we jump ahead eight months and Joseph yeah. is now working the railroad. We don't yes. explain this at all until he decides to not work the railroad. Thanks, ghost dad. I'm going to go <laughs> off and continue my original plan. Okay, but that sequence of him getting off the train and running across to join the wagon train is thrilling to me. So much of the landscape cinematography right? is so beautiful. And obviously we're about to get to the land run, which is mm, just mesmerizing. Really just epic. breathtaking yeah. work on screen, I think. But yeah, the character motivation here is just thin to the point of it's none so at all. Yeah. As I said, to have him on the train flashing back to the kiss that he shared. <laughs> just had. Although I love that ago. it's not the same kiss, though. It's a different kiss. I and love that. He has an entirely different imaginary daydream about another makeout session, a much hotter makeout session. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Odd choices. Odd I choices. I kind of like it. That's how my imagination works anyway. <laughs> And from there, we really do pick up the pace quite a lot. In Oklahoma, we get the exposition mm -hmm. about the land run. We get the buying of the horse, which will later die with the really good comic line. Yes. That's the oldest horse I ever saw. From the oldest man I've ever seen. <laughs> that, is, that is a solid good joke. It was. I agree. It really works. Also, we can just put him on this firecracker mustang right at Amazing. the end there. Yeah. yeah Amazing. Really strong yeah. stuff. Yeah. No, his, his horsemanship skills are really strong. And the way that it's shot so that... That really clearly is just the fastest horse. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. It's really it's good. It's so cool. I love the scene when he, again, coincidence town, right? When he catches the glimpse of her on the street. Sure. Goes over to her and, and talks to her in a really mature yeah. and surprisingly modern way, actually. I'm not sure that Tom Cruise has ever been more charming than right at the end of that sequence as he's leaving. As he's like, good luck with your life. I hope you get everything that you wanted. Yeah. You're a corker, Shannon. Yeah. Like, that's Good it was stuff. good. And it, Has he ever the way been that his shirt was else? too big for him. Yes. And he's holding his hat in his hands. I'm like, this is the most charming he's ever been. I completely agree. He really, really is. But just again, darling. the good hearted scrapper is yeah. just the archetype the that I want. Yeah. yeah. 100%. It's unfortunately followed right with the confrontation with Chase yeah. because at this point, and we he's just been have to the make worst him he's ever been. the flat out villain. Yeah. Now, right? he's, yeah. he's Disney villain at mm -hmm. this point, which is just no good at all. And then we cut to the start of the land run yep. with Joseph with showing up on his yeah. still alive, but also not at all docile horse. It's really good. I love when the cannon goes off and every single horse in that line, like their head flinches. Yes. yes. How great. And this oh is the thing, God. right? Yeah. You would never do that if you were using CGI to, yeah. if you were using CGI to create these shots from whole cloth, mm -hmm. or if you were using at the very least digital compositing, which is what right. we would do nowadays, we would have four horses and a wagon and right. we would shoot it 80 times and just composite, and composite them all together yep. into one big shot that's not what we're doing here this is david lean old school golden age of hollywood filmmaking on this magisterial absurd yep. scale like so absurd that it's kind of hard to love it because it's so over the top uh, i don't know i think it feels good i i mean I think you're right honestly there's just... something about cgi and compositing that i just it never feels the same to me and so i never feel like it looks as good even when you know it can objectively look better i still just i don't know it doesn't make my heart it quicken never the has way. this authenticity yeah. you're right no cgi cannot or or so rarely causes a, an emotional effect in the viewer because right. at sub subliminal level and maybe this you know, won't always yeah. be true right maybe 20 years from now maybe five sure. years from now ai will have completely revolutionized the industry and we literally won't be able to tell things apart we won't mm -hmm. be able to tell that this is unreal but knowing that this is real and having the 
the reflexivity of having the photographers on top of the tower taking these pictures, it feels, yeah, visceral and immediate. Yeah. And I don't hate at all that we spend so long just watching horses yeah. run across Montana. It's, it's no, absolutely gorgeous. stunning filmmaking. And much more importantly, this is where we land our three beat. I really can't convince you <laughs> that this is the best no. thing. Okay. I'm so glad that you liked it so much, we'll, though. I'm we'll really glad put it you were out so to the Discord. Is okay. this the best three beat in films <laughs> ever? I'm, I'm struggling to think of a more satisfying one. Maybe we can put up a poll okay. or something. Maybe we can play a game over on the, the Patreon someday. And then it's just the race to the finish line. We really mm -hmm. don't have much left in the film at all. Shannon falls from her horse while fording the river. Joseph catches up. He fights briefly with Chase. He this is great, though, where he shows care for her first. Yes. Where Chase is still up in the way of like, get back on your horse. Let's go. Yeah. It, yeah it's, it's wonderful. character in action. Mm -hmm. It's really good. I do not like watching the horses go down that no. embankment. Nope. That is I don't either. extremely steep nope. and bad. It does look very steep. And even just knowing, like understanding how the film is progressing so we see chase come down we see shannon pick that much more careful path yep. and i'm already thinking oh no i've seen joseph on that crazy horse oh yeah sure he's just gonna like launch <laughs> a double somersault jackknife into the river i don't know what is going to happen but again it's that physicality yeah, right? and yeah. a physicality that's replicated where as they're fighting joseph gets crushed by oh, the horse yes and then he dies and comes back. Yeah, he leaves his body. But then she says she loves him. So he says, oh, huh? <laughs> I comes back down. <laughs> think, I'm not sure. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm maybe going to have to sit with this for a couple of days. And obviously, you know, there's this conversation as a part of the mulling process. And I'm going to have to, you know, really, you know, turn to my books of literature and lore to work out how I feel about this. But I think I really hate it. Yeah. I think I really hate this stupid, stupid half-joke resolution yeah. of the storyline. What's funny is that when we did this camera shot with the dad and yeah. the soul started drifting up or whatever, I was like, this reminds me of something. What is it? And it was this. It was this shot at the end of this movie. <laughs> but my brain hadn't quite put it together. I didn't remember it, remember it yet. And then when it started happening, I was like, wait, I know this. Yeah. And I remember even seeing something about how it was done with a crane and all of that, you know, ages ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice technical accomplishment, sure. particularly because those giant 70 mil Panasonic cameras are heavy. Like you can sure. understand. Yeah, that, that could have been the job of, of work. Cruising right? <laughs> if something, if the safety meeting had not gone well, yes. But uh, just, just really misguided. Yeah. To both have him die and, and cinematically communicate the death, right? This is part of, of texts and their interactivity with the reader. You have to be able to trust what the text is showing you. Yeah. You have to be able to understand that when Maguire is shot twice in the chest as we arrive in Boston, that he is now dead and will play no further part in the proceedings. If sure. he had shown up in the third act, that would have been Dirty Pool. And this is similarly Dirty Pool. The mm -hmm. movie is showing us cinematically through the motion of the camera that he is dead, which is not, by the way, a dissatisfying end to this story. We could envision a version of this film that ends with Shannon claiming that land for herself, a modern American woman, and the last shot of the film being Joseph Donnelly's grave on her land, right? This is yeah, his land, yeah. kind of. It's yeah, not the yeah. film that we get, and maybe the tonality of the whole piece would be compromised by it, but I think you could imagine a version of that. I just cannot reconcile myself to this weird Disney fake death. Yeah, I get it. Does it, I, I mean, it's echoing, of course, that his dad did that, like went away and then came yeah. back. And I don't like it the first time either. <laughs> I, didn't like that either. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's not great. But that is basically all of Far and Away, a movie which I have to say I enjoyed a lot more than I thought I would. But now we have the extremely difficult task ahead of us of putting this damn thing on the list. Yeah. 
which is so hard for a film which has a few flaws mm-hmm. and one glaring, huge, politically problematic right, era. Right, yeah. I don't know quite how we distill those things or how we parse those things or where on earth we put this. Yeah. Because this is, I think, my favorite cruise that we've had so far. I think it's my favorite cruise we've had so far, too. Yeah. I agree. I think he's better in this than he is in, in Top Gun, which is crazy. But, but it's yeah. not in any way iconic. It is generally nope. now regarded as the first you know, Flop. failure yeah, of his career. Yeah. I mean, I, I quite like it. I'm going to put it up there pretty high. To me, it goes, when I just ca- kind of have that gut feeling about which other movie I like as well as this one, the only one I can think of is Legend. Legend is exactly where I'm looking on the list, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. Right now, I our think we're right. top five, let's say, Top Gun, Rain Man, Legend, The Outsiders, and Days of Thunder. I, it's I like either... it better than Rain Man. You like it better than Rain Man? I do. Rain Man also had plot issues and dragged in the middle. But I'm not going to go back and watch it Rain Man did. for pleasure. But Rain Man, I will was go back and watch this for pleasure. A politically more charged, yes. still, still yes. a very okay. fractured film in that sense. But it didn't engage in the mass erasure of you know a Native American. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. Yes, I hear what you're saying. Well, uh, and I say that to raise it as a as a point, right? I, mm-hmm. I say that to mm-hmm. engage with that as a bit of our critical apparatus here, right? Is that a problem? Like, do we care that Far and Away doesn't deal with that? You know what? Uh, Risky Business doesn't deal with genocide either. It doesn't purport to. It doesn't intend to. Yeah, but it's not telling a story about that and just ignoring uh, it. This is also not telling a story about that. This is telling a fantasy story about a version of the Oklahoma land run. And maybe we can argue, right, the irresponsibility of the invocation of these historical touchstones without proper political context maybe that is at its best at its most charitable irresponsible Mm -hmm. and maybe at its worst it is deceitful right it is propagandistic right this is perpetuating this myth of american colonization this this empty virgin land right and and the virtue the 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 valor of westward expansion without properly contextualizing Mm -hmm. so but does that change the quality of the film does it meaningfully actually change the quality of the film in some ways, I think yes, because it just makes the story so much more insubstantial when the story is already suffering from being thin. I agree. Yeah, right? I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah, that's a point. Um, well, in that case, put Rain Man over Legend. That seems wild to me. I really see, I really, really have enjoyed Legend. I've been thinking about but it a lot. But you're not thinking about what a mess Legend is. It, it was in such, a lot I know, because it's. It stands out in your mind of as course. like a sequence of just extraordinary scenes and visuals and you forget how silly it is. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, I think I might be comfortable putting Far and Away under Legend, but above The Outsiders, which also kind of I agree. does not live up to its obligation yeah. of properly depicting social and economic complexity in Oklahoma at that time, right? It, it is also sure. a film more than the book, much more than the book. It is the film in adaptation that wants to make this vision of Oklahoma a little bit more fairy tale mm-hmm. and a little bit easier and a little bit less, yeah, jagged and problematic. Yeah. So I can see a similar kind of movement there. I think the sin of omission for Far and Away is much, much greater. And if that breaks the film for you, dear listener, I completely understand yeah. and respect that. I really do. But I also think the highs in general are higher. And I think it is also functionally, you know, yeah, a much better Tom Cruise movie. So that's my yeah. pitch is number four on the list. I Under like Legend that. above yeah. the outsiders. That feels good to you? That feels good to me. 
then that's where it's going to go. Okay. And that is our discussion on Far and Away. The last star in Hollywood, let me tell you, is a Next Word production. So if you would like to support Next Word and get access to bonus episodes, we just recorded our bonus episode on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> that was a rollicking good time. As well as bonus episodes of my genre fiction podcast, Stars and Swords. Oh, and unscripted, unedited, off-the-cuff insider episodes yeah. where we just, we just sit down out. and talk about whatever we want to. <laughs> you can find all of that at patreon.com slash nextword and help support independent ad-free podcasting. And you know who supports us over on the Patreon page, Elizabeth? We want to give special thanks to our superstar patrons, to Louise in Dallas, to Megan Louder, Phoebe, Leslie Skipa, and our newest patrons, Art Kilmer and Kimberly. Thank you and welcome. Thank you so much for your support, you guys. We really appreciate it. Everything that we do here is... You know, dependent on your largesse. So yes, thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> especially since our car repair guy just called with the bill. So how rude to interrupt our podcast, <laughs> by the way. Interrupting our podcast. Interrupt our recording to tell us that we now have to pay $1,000 for this car. <laughs> tough day, you guys. Tough tough start to the new year. But that's, that's all right. It. I'm Big moving to Oklahoma. The land there is free. <laughs> Next week, speaking of big things coming, next week, the second of Tom Cruise's 1992 movies. And guys, this is a big one. We finally find out if he can handle the truth. Rob Reiner's Aaron Sorkin's A Few Good Men coming up next week on The Last Star in Hollywood. Good deal. Good deal. So that'll be next week on the show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Bye.